Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Hi folks, Catherine here. Um, no Matt, no David today, but not to worry to fill the vast void uh, that they leave. We have a very special guest indeed, an 18-time Grand Slam champion, one half of tennis's greatest ever rivalry um, in the view of, uh, well, certainly myself and I think Matt and David and much of the tennis world as well. It is, of course, Chris Everett. You've heard a little portion of this interview um, in our Tennis Relived series uh, for the French Open when we were talking about her 1985 final there against Martina Navratilova. Well, this is the chance to hear the whole interview. She's she's one of my favourite interviewees ever to be quite honest with you she's she's fascinating she's so insightful and and reflective and and such a a smart erudite person and a and a real inspiration for me so it was a great great pleasure to get to speak to her this is one of two chris evert focused podcasts this week chris evert week on the tennis podcast um so you've got the full interview today and then we'll be coming back in just a few days with the Chris Everett story, our reflections on the interview, a full kind of rundown of her career, complete with uh, lots of glorious Matt stats and, and quotes from pieces over the years. And we can't wait to record that too. And of course, if there's any significant news developments uh, in the world of tennis over the next few days, we'll be coming to you with a news views update podcast as well, possibly even featuring Simon Briggs. But that's for another day. For now, please sit back and enjoy Chris Abbott. Well, Chrissy, it's so great to have you. Honestly, it's uh, it's been an ambition of ours to to get you on the podcast to to chew the fat for a long time. So I really, really appreciate your time. Um, I don't think I've done... I think I've interviewed four different times for my tennis academy, but I don't think I've done a podcast where somebody's interviewed me. So, Oh, wow. I feel honoured, genuinely honoured. Um, obviously, these are crazy circumstances right now. What's life like for you? How's it been? I hope you and your family are safe. How much are you missing tennis? Well, first of all, we're healthy and we're safe. Every All three boys are good. I'm good. Um, it's been an eye-opener. It's been a gut check really um it's been difficult for everybody but i feel like you know again i feel fortunate that i have it better than most um because you know i'm I'm healthy and because i'm I'm in south florida sorry (laughs) you know we can get outside once in a while with our masks on and but i'm really happy because this past monday um my tennis academy opened up and of course, it has very strict regulations, only singles, two kids on a court, one coach on the side with a mask on. Um, the coach is feeding the balls with the gloves. The kids are not allowed to pick up the balls. They have their own chairs and their own wipes and, their, you know, and their own waters. And we're no parents allowed. Nobody else. It's, it's, it's really um, a different look you know, for an academy. But I mean, this is the look that I think we're going to have to have to start out. And Florida is one of the states in in America that 
um, we're in phase one in allowing recreational, you know, parks and golf and tennis uh, to, to slowly open, but with strict requirements. Are you seeing people at the academy that are just so excited to get to play tennis again? Are you seeing that kind of raw joy for the sport? So much, so much. I mean, the kids uh, are just so excited to go out there and work hard. And they're, this is Friday, so they've had five days. And I went there this morning and they're tired. They're exhausted. I mean, we put them through, you know, a good, uh, a good five days with fitness also. And, um, but they, they've been raring to go. But, but at the same time, you know, looking ahead to tournaments, which they really look forward to, that doesn't seem to be happening for them. But, um, you know, it's great to get outside and get some vitamin D and, and, and play the sport that they love to play. So much uncertainty that you've kind of just referenced there about the future. We're kind of just treading really carefully about what it's going to look like. Everyone's had a lot of time to to think about what it might look like. People are talking about changes, a WTA ATP merger maybe. What do you think about that? Um, you know, it, it, well, first, your first question about what's going to happen the rest of the year. At, at first, in March, when somebody asked me that, and I go, oh, I, look, I, the fall is so far away, and I'm sure we'll be done, we'll be able to play by the fall. You know, now, the way the pandemic is going, and it's leveled off, but it's not going downhill you know, and, and the world is affected and, and flights are restricted. And I don't know if we're going to play any pass for the rest of the year, which, which really is quite shocking, I think, to the system of especially, you know, not to me in particular, but to the, the, uh, the pros out there. And it would be really, it would be really, I think it would, I think it's going to change a lot of people's perspectives about life and how they live. And I've heard some of the players saying, you know, I quite enjoy being at home and I'm cooking and I'm being with my family and I'm trying out new things and I'm fit and this and that. And then I, and then you hear other players say that they're going crazy and they're going out of their minds. So it's going to be interesting to see when the players come back, you know, who is playing well. It's not going to be predictable. It's, there's no momentum going. Everybody's going to start off equally. And I think we're going to see some definite surprises as far as mergers. You know, again, this has been discussed. Billie Jean King wanted this in the early seventies and the men were like, no way, Jose, you know, that's when they were getting, they were getting a hundred thousand dollars prize money and we were getting $10,000 prize money checks. So, I mean, the men didn't want to have anything to do with us, but the men in this day and age, you know, the men are different. And they are more, you know, evolved. They're smarter. Um, and I think they, they appreciate and, uh, women's tennis and they see the power that the women have and they see the crowds that the women are drawing. In theory, it would be wonderful. In theory. But, but oh, my gosh, I wouldn't want to be the one who's organizing it. I mean, just the logistics of sponsorship and... You know, just I don't know sponsorship and um, what tournaments to play, and egos would would probably enter into it. And if men's tennis is bigger than women's tennis right now, you know what will the men think if if they have to give some of their prize money to the women? And I don't know. I just I think it's going to be really difficult. It's a great theory, but it was said sort of in a in a light tone, I think, like, oh, I wouldn't be great now if the men and women could get together. And, and it sounds great, but, I mean, it would be it would be a lot of hard work. And, um, I, you know, good luck with that. I, I hope I, – I would like to see it work if, if everybody – if it makes everybody happy. It surely would – you know, the men and the women together are more powerful, no doubt about it. And we would draw more crowds. And look at the, the terms we already have men and women together. They're – you know, it's just off the charts with TV and and uh, prize money, equal prize money, and it's it's just it's great. I don't know, it'll be tough. 
as you said, it was really it was really funny when when Federer tweeted what he did and the world kind of blew up about it. Billie Jean King just, you know, very casually said, hey, great idea. I've been saying this since the early 70s. Does that kind of tennis's modern tennis's kind of lack of appreciation for its history, its past, maybe particularly on the women's side and the original nine and Virginia Slim's tour and what you and Martina did to build that tour. Does that ever frustrate you? No, it doesn't frustrate me. I know. I mean, it's a, it's a, I realize that, um, the women really, uh, and, and I'm not putting, I, I, I will say a lot of the women pros, um, really don't think about, and I don't want to say they don't care, but they don't really think about, um, Christy Pigeon and Denise Carter and, you know, the, the players back in the early seventies, um, and Jones and, you know, Judy Dalton and Rosie Casals. I don't think they really give two thoughts about, about the players. And, and I, and, but it, so it doesn't frustrate me because I think that that's part of being in your little bubble and that's what the players are. It, listen, I was in my little bubble too, but I had Billie Jean as my mentor and she would talk about Suzanne Langland and Helen Wills Moody and Maureen Conley. And, you know, she would kind of educate us and, and, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I think, the it's just a it's just very different nowadays it's just so commercial and so business like business as usual oh I had a bad day at the office you never would have heard that 40 years ago i had a bad day at the office you know do, do you think this current period this situation could potentially change that a little bit it'll bring people out of their bubbles it'll force them to have some perspective the bigger picture i think so i i i, I mean i know I, I mean, I know for me, and I'm not a player, I, I would think that the players, when they're being um, sort of ripped out of their normal comfort zone and their normal environment of doing the same thing over and over, their routine, I think that has has got to open up their eyes to life in general. And, you know, and watching the TV and seeing the front line and putting people putting their lives at risk for us and really letting it sink in um, is, is something that you don't think about when you're in a match and it's four on the third, you know, you're just thinking about winning the match. So for sure, I think it's going to change everybody's perspectives about life. If you're at all conscious, socially conscious um, and socially aware and for the better. And um, I think that, I think all this has made life simpler. We talked about that before the, the interview. Things are simpler now. I mean, you know, we're not wearing makeup. How's that? <laughs> we're not getting our hair done. You know, we're not getting our facials. We're not, you know, there's, we're not going to the spa. We're not, there's just a lot of fluff there. A lot of cotton candy and fluff in the world that, um, that we thought was pretty important. That really isn't important. It's all about, your health and your family and relationships. I mean, that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Um, I want to speak to you a bit about your rivalry and relationship with Martina, obviously. Um, I, I've i seen interviews the two of you have done together. I don't think I've ever been in a room with the two of you at the same time. That dynamic that the two of you have now and, and then, it just fascinates me. I know this is a huge p question, but can you try and put it into words for me, your relationship, your dynamic, what you share. Well, we, I mean, we started our rivalry, um, when she was 16 and I was 18 and, um, we've, we had a 18 year rivalry and we had our ups and downs, um, not only in matches, but in, in our relationships and our friendships. There are times when, she didn't like me. And there are times when I didn't like her and I didn't talk to her. She didn't talk to me. There are times um, when we were going to dinner and, and practicing together. So, I mean, there are a lot of ups and downs. But at the end of the day, I think the last few years of our career, we realized that we are both human beings. And we realized it wasn't all about the competition and the rivalry. Because Martina and I, so many times, 80 times, 
would end up, ended up in the locker room on a Sunday alone, just she and I in the locker room. And we would sense each other's nerves before the match. And after the match, one of us would always be comforting the other one. One of us won, one of us lost. So many times in tears, Martina would come over and put her arm around me. Many times I would go over and put my arm around her. And I think we just realized that, um, we just, we were going to be bound together for the rest of our lives. And subsequently we're very close friends now. And it's really interesting. There's no pressure whatsoever. You know, there's no pressure because we don't have to compete against each other. I don't want to give her the edge. She doesn't want to give me the edge. You know, that's what it was. If, if we got too close to each other emotionally and too close as friends, the edge would go. So we stayed apart. But now, um, now it's different. We just look at each other and laugh. And she's with Tennis Channel and I'm with ESPN, two competitors. And she, I mean, we're still competing. <laughs> we're still competing. But the beautiful thing is, you know, she lives 30 minutes from me now. She's in South Florida. What are you doing? Martina, are you following me around the map or what? Um, and we can giggle and have a glass of wine and um, tease each other. And, and because we're old, I mean, we're over 60 for heaven's sake. So it's at some point in your life, you just got to let down the, just let down the, the mask and be yourself with one another. Before Martina came along, when you were completely dominating the tour, people used to talk about a talent gap that you were just so much better than everybody else on tour. And of course, as people like to do, they used it as a, a stick to beat women's tennis with. Did you feel like you were waiting for a rival to come along. Yeah, actually, I don't know if that's, I, I don't know if that's true. I, I think that one thing I will say when I came along, none of the women had ground strokes except for Nancy Ritchie, Billie Jean, Margaret Court, Rosie Casals, Virginia Wade. They all serve in volley. Three of the four grand slams were on grass. So they all serve in volley and that's, they serve in volley on clay and they serve in volley on hard and, and so when I came along, I had ground strokes and I would keep them nailed to the baseline. And that's how I won because I just wear them down. Um, so I don't think it wasn't that I had competition because on grass, you know, I mean, I, I still struggled against Billie Jean and Yvonne and, and, you know, the, Margaret Court on grass courts. But I think on, on a clay or a hard court, um, you know, it was different. So I think... What I, if I did anything, I added the thought, maybe they were starting to think in their minds, oh boy, we better get some ground strokes here and get an all-court game, you know, get an all-around game. And, and that's, that's really what happened. But it, it wasn't easy. I mean, I had, before Martina, I still had Yvonne. Billie Jean was still playing well. Margaret Court was still playing well. Um, it, it wasn't that easy. I, I don't think it, I ever felt like it was easy. There was always somebody there that was challenging me. But with Martina and I, there was such a contrast with us. You know, she's, she's comes from a communist country. I come from the land of freedom. She's emotional. I'm cool. You know, she's big and strong and I'm looking weak out there. Um, you know, and I was a baseliner and she was a survivor. So I think the contrast really helped liven up the rivalry and it forced her fans and my fans to come to the table, you know, together and that's why we had, you know, such a wonderful rivalry. One of the reasons. There's a couple of matches in that rivalry in particular I want to pick out that we're going to be re-watching over the next few weeks during when the French Open and Wimbledon would have been. Are you quickening up the pace? Of <laughs> it's no. The first one is the 1978 Wimbledon final between you and Martina, which was Martina's first ever slam. It was an epic match. You're making a face which indicates you remember this vividly. But there was such an what looked like a lovely embrace between the two of you at the net afterwards. And you looked genuinely happy for Martina. And I was in love with John Lloyd. What are you going to say to that? <laughs> I don't know. I'm waiting for you to say something else. I, I, I was, you know, I, 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 I'm very honest at my age now. I'm very honest. And that... Wimbledon, I met John and we'd start dating and I was, I had fallen for him and I would have been happy if I lost love and love, you know, I would have still been happy. So I think if anything that took the little, a little bit of, um, 
intensity out of me. Um, I'm, I'm happy that Martina, I, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly happy for Martina, but when I look back there, there was, that was the one I should have won. I should have won that one. I think I was upset in the break against her. And then I hit her in the head with a tennis ball and that changed the whole momentum um, of the match. And I think I relaxed too much and she got fired up. And, and I think that the match, um, you know, went on and she won it, but, but I really looking back that I should have definitely won that. And on the other hand, in 1974, when my first Wimbledon never should have won it, I never should have won it because I was not the best grass court player. Yvonne Gulagong and Billie Jean King were better than me on grass but they had lost early on in the tournament. So it opened up the draw for me. But um, so anyway, I don't know if I've ever admitted that before, but, but, you know, that match against Martina, um, you know, kudos to her because that was the start of one of nine Wimbledon titles for her. So if I'm going to lose to anybody, I'm glad I lost to her. After that match in 78, did you remember (laughs) thinking, wow, I've got a, I've got a real rival on my hands here. Do you remember like what you thought about, Martina as a as an opponent after that it wasn't even after that um it was you know even the year before even when I was beating her I I kept saying to myself oh my gosh if if this young girl ever gets into shape and and into you know physical fitness she's going to be so dangerous because all she needed to do is really get into shape to move a little bit faster she was already a great tennis player, you know, had a big lefty serve, had a big lefty forehand, nice slice backhand, beautiful volley. She was already a great player. But um, at that point, a rivalry was not even in my thought process, you know, because it was still we were still so young and there was still Yvonne was was there and and Billy was there and, and there are still other players that, um, you know, I was also playing in the finals of a lot of tournaments. The second match that I want to focus on is the 85 French Open final. It's interesting you said that 78 Wimbledon you should have won and you didn't because you said after this French final, nobody, press fans, players expected you to win. You'd lost the previous year to Martina and you won. Yeah, I mean, I can say on the same, same, in the same breath, maybe that was one that she could have won. Or should have won, you know, because she had me on the ropes many times in that match. But at some point, I had lost to Martina 13 times in a row in over two and a half years. And I had beaten her earlier that year in Miami. And that was my 14th match. after I was 0 for 13. That was my 14th match in a row. Where and, and And I started with a different strategy. I started coming into the net a little bit more. I started taking a few more risks and I won that match. And I think that gave me confidence, but I still felt that she was still the number one player in the world and that she still was better than me. But that French Open, you know, I just, I never gave up. And I I remember there were points where I was really, it was down like 40 love one game and I brought it back to deuce and it was a seesaw match. I think it was full of nerves and we really didn't play each of us didn't play our best tennis, but it was certainly suspenseful and the crowd got their monies out of it, that's for sure. But that, I think that of all my 18 Grand Slams, I think that was the happiest I've ever felt. You know, beating her when everybody, like you said, had counted me out in three set, a tough three-set match on clay. And it made me want to play for years after that. And I played for like three or four years after that. You, you touched upon a little earlier the the huge contrast between you and Martina kind of in every different way. And the press just completely bought into that, right? You were pitched as polar opposites, you know, in every way you were America's sweetheart. How did you feel about that, that presentation of the two of you as opposites? Well, you know, I, it was an image and an image isn't always right. It was an image. Um, And that's one of the things that is tough when you're young and you become famous and the press dub you certain, you know, 
I mean, I was Little Miss Icicle. I was Cinderella in sneakers. I was this golden girl who could do no wrong. And first of all, that was wrong. And then the second thing was this, this unemotional icicle thing that was wrong because I was very, I mean, I was very emotional, but on the court, I was able to keep it in and just be measured and be calm, but it wasn't, you know, that wasn't me off the court. So there's a lot, there was a lot built up of my image and also Martina's image because when we were on the court, I was the tough one inside the steely one and she was like the pussycat deep inside and the soft one and when everybody everybody thought she was tough and I wasn't you know I was like they felt sorry for me I think some fans felt sorry for me because Martina was such a great athlete and she'd go out there with these muscles rippling and the veins and and she just really would have been great in any sport I mean she was so athletic and I was um, you know, I, w- I was a really good athlete, but I was not in her class. So um, I think that, you know, I think the image, there are a lot of aspects to her image and my image that was, that was wrong. That was wrong. But, you know, that's the press. The press do that. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's not a good thing in the sense of it puts you in a bubble. I think it did the same thing to John McEnroe. And it, it, Anna Kornikova and it puts you in a bubble and you're, you're labeled at a young age and you kind of have to act it out and give the people their money, you know, and, and it's, um, it's, that's one difficult thing of fame at a young age. I read a quote from, from Billie Jean King, um, which she said when you were 16 and kind of rising up the rankings, I think you were number four in the world at the time. She said she's number four and going up, but she no longer belongs to herself. She belongs to the public now. Wow. I mean, is Billie Jean King like the wisest person? I mean, she is, she's unbelievable. The things that she had a vision for everything for, for, for tennis, for people, and she's right on the money there. My my life was not my own after that. And I didn't really have the space to develop um, my own character, my own personality. I didn't have the space. I didn't have the room. I didn't have the privacy. Everything was done out in the open in front of people. I mean, I can't I, I say that then, but now it's even it's a hundred times worse. It's with social media and just cameras on you no matter where you go. I mean, at least we had we had more privacy back then. But no, Billie Jean was right. And um, uh, so that's why people have to understand, you know, it's not all peaches and cream out there. You know, we're, we're yes, we're winning. We're making money. We're winning titles and we're traveling. But there's a lot of there's not a price for for privacy. I, I don't think there's no there is not no price for privacy or there's a price for privacy. And that was it. Yeah, yeah I, I was going to ask whether you felt like people, the public, knew the real you. But then I guess an extension of that is, did you feel like you knew the real you? <laughs> Very good. Um, no, no, probably no to both. I mean, a lot of, look, a lot of, I'm not saying that I walked around like, you know, in a fake way. But I mean, a lot of, a lot of it was, was, was the real me. I was... Um, you know, I came from a, a very middle class sort of principal home. I mean, I, I was humble and I was, but I was very shy. And my, again, when I started becoming famous at 16, when I got to the semifinals of the U.S. Open, I was so shy. I didn't say more than one sentence to the press at one time. And so when, again, I, I didn't, my personality wasn't developed. So, so that's going to be affected by fame. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think it takes a long, it took me a long time to sort of feel comfortable with myself and I had to go through a lot. I had to go through, you know, relationships and I had to really analyze myself and I had to go through, you know, therapy and I had to, you know, I did all of that to, to figure out who I was because the other thing is who you are also has a lot to do with how you're brought up. And I was brought up in a, in a household that, um, we couldn't say or disagree with our parents. I mean, I couldn't disagree with my dad at all. He was a pretty dominant father and very loving, but we basically couldn't have an opinion. 
And we, I mean, that's the, the way parents were in those days. And there's a lot of fear involved growing up in my house. So um, it's how you grow up. And it's also then, and then when you're out in the world, it's how people treat you. And, and quite frankly, when you're a, a star, everybody pats you on the back and tells you how great you are all the time. That's, that can't be good for you either. <laughs> so there's a lot of, you know, toxicity out there that, um, that, that occurs or happens around famous, successful people. And when you're young and you start out that way, it doesn't always end up good. So I'm happy that I worked through it. And your father was your coach and you were kind of groomed to be a champion from a really young age. Do you think that's kind of an inevitable trade-off? Is it possible to be a champion and a really well-adjusted human being? Or is it kind of one or the other? (laughs) That's a good question. It's rare. You know, it's, it's rare. I think, I, I think it's, it's doable, but, um, I know for me, because I didn't have the physical ability and I wasn't the athlete that could get free points. Um, I think for me, I had to always be intense every single point and I had to work hard and I, and in order for me to get to that superior mental place, I had to give up a lot, you know, and I had to really focus my attention on tennis. And I look at Steffi Groff and I think she did, she was very much the same way. And Monica Sellis, very much the same way. I mean, there's some intense players out there that, and Tracy Austin, um, that, you know, you just, it's part of your nature. And if you want it that badly, you've got to sacrifice and you've got to give up other things. And a lot of those other things are part of normal living. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I hope that I've made up for it in those years, you know, I hope. But, I mean, I, even going to college, I think, is a great experience for kids on a relationship level. You know, just being with kids your own age and having relationships, having boyfriends, having and then having boundaries and responsibilities. And, I mean, when you're a tennis player, people let you get away with anything. So, um, you know, missing out on a lot of vital, important lessons in life. Um, I think, I think, uh, there are trade-offs. There are trade-offs. When you see young players now coming through and experiencing something similar to what you went through, do they ever seek your advice? Do you ever kind of feel to reach out to them to, to give them the, the wisdom of, of having come out the other side? If they would ask me, I would, but I certainly am not going to impose myself on them. I think, you know, all of a sudden, uh, everybody has teams. Everybody has teams. Everybody's got, you know, five people on a team and experts who are advising them. And they're, they, you know, they're not going to welcome me trying to tell them what to do so or giving advice. But certainly... It's it's interesting, I, I, and I'm sure Billy Jean feels the same way. Martina, we can see things that are developing or happening um, with some of the young players. And you know, the first thing you need is you need a good support system, and you need parents to be parents. You need parents to be supportive and loving, and not put pressure on you. Uh, so, I mean, that's the number one rule. Um, because, as you know, there have been a lot of a lot of bad endings for some, not a lot, but a few bad endings for some of the women who have had uh, coaches that were their fathers or their mothers. And it's not always a pleasant thing, but um, all in all, I think there's just more information getting out there and, and more, you know, I know the WTA is doing a lot to help that scenario. And, um, you know, I think it, I think it looks pretty healthy right now, the WTA. That focus and concentration that you had on the court, that seemingly complete, completely unique ability you had to just be intense 100% of the time, did that take a toll on you, having to contain your emotions all the time out there? Did you need an outlet for those emotions off the court? Um. You know, I think that it was hard during my tennis career to, I mean, I was married to tennis. And I think after I retired, it was, it was easier for me to, to just be a normal person and to let go of all that intensity. 
and focus. Um, but while I was playing, I don't think I had a lot left over for anybody else. So I think I was pretty self-absorbed. And I, I think my, again, I came from a, a, my family support was awesome. I mean, not only my parents, but I have four brothers and sisters who I relied on a lot. Um, but even friendships and I mean, they all, it's like, it does drain you. I mean, when I, I was in every single point on the court, I was focused on every point because I knew that my opponent wouldn't be. And I knew that I would be getting unforced errors and free points. And that, that's why I think my mind was my biggest weapon. But at the end of the day, it drained me. And I didn't really have a lot left over. <laughs> so good question. <laughs> have, you, uh, have you found a you use? Like, I talk to you once a week. Will you be my therapist? <laughs> oh, I call once a week we can talk about my life. <laughs> have you found a use for that skill post-retirement, that concentrate that ability to concentrate do you play a lot of chess or something like that you know do you do you put that to use do you know what um Catherine I think after I retired I went the totally the opposite way and I again I became so relaxed for some reason every time I woke up you know I retired at 34 and in my 30s um I had three kids and every time I woke up, I felt like I was on vacation and I felt like, oh, I'm so happy. And I was like a hippie mom, you know, I'm, I'm just, you know, would take them everywhere, the parks and pick them up at school and make their lunch. And I was just totally the, the, the mom that was there. And that was pretty relaxing for me. Um, I haven't, I definitely haven't needed that intensity at long, for long periods of time since tennis. But maybe maybe that would probably put me in my grave if I would have found something else. But, I mean, I, I have moments where, like with my tennis academy, you know, I can focus on a player now and, and see a lot of things and try to help them and be a mentor and a coach to them. Um, or ESPN, when I'm commentating, I, I, I can, I'm studying players, I'm studying research, and I'm you know, talking about them. And so there are certain things in my life now that small pockets of time, I can use that intensity and that focus because that's your, I mean, that's a part of me. It comes easy for me. What's the closest you get now to, to recapturing that adrenaline rush of competing and winning? Or maybe yeah. there isn't anything that comes no, close. Nothing. There's nothing. Uh, let me tell you, when you're holding that trophy, that Wimbledon trophy up, on center court and you're walking around parading around the court it you're in your own little world and you're you're ecstatic and there is no um better feeling but it's it's more of an e it's an ego thing rather than um you know i mean the the happiest i've ever been in my life is when i had kids when i had children i mean children my boys make me the happiest i mean that they're the birth of my first child, I was like, oh, I mean, nothing can compare to that. No Wimbledon trophy, nothing can compare to that. Because it's about a life and it's about emotionally, it's about somebody else. But that Wimbledon trophy is about you. And there is adrenaline and you feel like you're on top of the world. But, you know, it's hard for me to find something now that's going to make me feel like that. I mean, I'm, I'm accepting feeling, you know, peaceful. At this point, you know, I, I'm, there's going to be very few times where I'm like the adrenaline is flowing, so I'm ecstatic. I think unless until oh, wait when I'm a grandmother, maybe when my 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 children have children, maybe. <laughs> you you said Wimbledon trophy there, which was interesting because I think I mean obviously you won them all, but I think most people would just associate with you with the French Open, the seven titles there. Was Wimbledon the ultimate? Yes, because. It because of the tournament, the significance and the image and the history of the tournament, and because it was on a surface that was the most challenging to me. So when I won on grass, that kind of meant more to me than when I won on a hard court or a clay court. And because it was because I had to make changes, I had to be flexible. 
I had to adapt. Uh, you know, I had to think outside the box. And so that to me, Wimbledon is just the best. And I'm American and I want to say the US Open, but I've got to say Wimbledon. I've got to say Wimbledon. So the French Open comes below Wimbledon in the US? <laughs> no, I don't. No, I'm not saying that. No. <laughs> I, I just, I'm going to just tell you my number one thrill was to win Wimbledon. That's going to be, the, I'm, going to, I'm going to tell you that. The others were so significant, but for different reasons. I mean, U.S. Open, my country, but French Open, my surface. So both of those meant a lot. Which title? Anyone in particular? 85 French Open. That's why I told you that was the most, um, That as far as my emotions and as far as, I, I just had been through so much... I think adversity because I was later, it was later on in my career and nobody expected, everybody counted me out. So I think that title meant the most to me than all, all the other Grand Slams. Did you ever expect to have the, the longevity that you ended up having? I was looking back on some quotes from Serena the other day from like 10 years ago when she laughed off the possibility of still being playing tennis in 10 years time. She couldn't even conceive of it. Did you feel the same? Yes. Yes. I think when I was 19, I kind of, somebody said something about Billie Jean at 30 and I kind of laughed and I said, Oh God, there's no way I'm going to be playing at 30. And I was kind of like, almost like a put down and, and, and it's unbelievable. I mean, the years just keep, they just kept going on and on. And every year was different. Every year you kind of reinvented yourself. You know, you, you maybe had a new contract with clothes or um, you had a bigger serve or I came into the net more or I lost weight or, you know, or I had all of a sudden it's Steffi and Monica, you know, new, new competition, new challenges, new goals. Um, and as long as I was healthy and as long as I had I was eager and hungry to play. You know, you want to milk it as long as you can because it's short-lived. You know, we can't, I mean, you can do a lot of, You there are a lot of people that are working at their craft when they're 60, 70 years old. But, I mean, in tennis, it's short-lived. You, you retired in your early 30s in my day. Now it's going to be almost like 40, which is which is great, you know, which is, is that is going to be the norm pretty much now. So, um, no, in a million years, I didn't think I'd be playing until 34. But but even then, I thought I'd retire. I don't know. 34 seemed old at the time, but now it seems young. Did your, did your motivation ever ever wane during your career? Yeah. Did you- That's, it, it, it started waning about when I was 32. And I remember I met Andy Mill, who I later married. And we were married for 20 years. And I remember him looking at me because he had had 15 operations on his knees, his back, his neck and everything from from skiing. He was an Olympic skier. And I remember him looking at me one day when I was complaining, like, oh, I don't feel like going out and practicing. And he goes, Chrissy, milk it as long as you can, because look at me. He goes, you know, you're so lucky that you have that choice to play or not to play. He goes, but once you once you leave it, it behind you, you're never going to get it back. So play as long as you can and as long as you can enjoy it. So um, that so the last two years, and then that last year, uh, I think an example of my my focus and my concentration. There were days when I woke up that I didn't want to get out of bed to go to practice. There were days when I woke up when I didn't want to pra- to play a match. One example is my last term at U.S. Open. I played Monica Sellis. I think I beat her one and one, maybe six, one, six, one. I I think Monica got two games and I would say it was one of the best matches I've ever played in my life. And I'm like, Oh, great. You know, I'm playing one of the best matches and I'm going to retire after this tournament. Two days later, I played, um, Zena Garrison and I didn't want to get out of bed. And I, and I played one. I, I, I just had no motivation whatsoever to be out there. I was up four one and lost the match, and I and it's almost like I didn't care. And um, that I'm glad that I went out like that because that further 
reminded me why I was retiring from tennis because that that was the pattern in a lot of these tournaments. I was either you know I was up too up and down, and my the name of my game was consistency. Do you remember when and how you made the decision to retire? I actually re- made the decision the year before, and my agent Bob Kane said to me. Okay, so if you if you want to play one more year, because I said I want to play one more year, you need to make that announcement. And so all these tournaments, you know, you go to Virginia Slims of Dallas, or you go to Virginia Slims of Houston, or whatever. Um, just make that announcement, and these tournaments can be more special to you and to the fans. So um, I made the announcement like at the beginning of the year. This is gonna be my last year, and I played right through to the U.S. Open. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. I wanted to ask you about, well, a couple of other things. You played the WTA finals in the years when it was best of five sets, which seems like a long time ago now. And I mean, it doesn't get talked about much, the prospect of of best of five on the women's tour. What do you think about it? Horrible. (laughs) I thought it was horrible. I, well, I mean, when you grow up and you're playing, you're used to it for the men. It's like normal. But all of a sudden you play two out of three your whole life. In your whole career, and then all of a sudden you're in a tournament. You have to play three out of five. It's like uncharted territory. It was like a dark hole. I got down two sets to love against Martina, and I'm like thinking to myself, "Really? I'm gonna come back and beat her in three sets on this fast court?" <laughs> it's like, okay. Did, I mean, I don't know. Did I go through the motions that third set? Because there's no way that I had it in me to win three sets in a row. You know, I've never played five sets in my life. And I had, I played her on a fast court indoors. So after I lost two sets, that was my experience with a three out of five set match. I think the third set was like six, one. I'm I'm (laughs) guessing Martina absolutely loved it. Well, I don't know. You'd have to ask her if she was two sets down, if she would love it, but being two sets up, anybody would love it. You know, I'm sure it's, devastating to think if you're the one that's down two sets of love especially if you're a woman and you're not used to it it's like oh my how am i gonna how am i gonna win three sets against this certain volleyer you know so you but you'd have to i don't know in other years i think one year there was a four set match i'd have to look that up but i think there was a four set match one year i don't know if sabatini was involved but um i'm hoping that we i'm hoping that one of those years because it didn't last very long but one of those years, it went to more than three sets. So we can say that we played a three out of five set match once and we didn't like it. 
Do you feel like now there is too much emphasis on the slams as opposed to tour events? Because you and Martina, as we referenced earlier, had it seemed like you felt this real responsibility towards the tour to, to show up at those events and help build the tour. Whereas now, I mean, there are big, successful tour events, but it's so much about the slams. I, you know, that's, that's a, that's a good question. But I mean, at the time we were building a tour and we were needed, you know, we needed to be week in and week out. We needed to be in those tournaments every week. Martina and I, um, Billy to a certain extent, because she was kind of phasing her tennis out, but Martina and I had to be in every tournament the whole year or else the promoter wasn't happy. So we'd have to do our schedules almost together. And then I remember the WTA would come to me after I made out my schedule and they would go, okay, there's two weeks here that they need either you or Martina, which one do you want? <laughs> so we were plugging tournaments in for the tour, even though we, we don't want to play. Um, so at that time it was needed. Nowadays it's, it's, there's enough, enough, I think depth in the game that you, every top, every number one player in the world or every number two doesn't have to play week in and week out. So it's a little different now. There's better depth. There's bigger names. Um, in the top 10, everybody's a big name in the top 10. Um, and I think the Grand Slams, you know, I don't, I don't mind the Grand Slams getting a lot of um, attention. What, what I, think, I think when it comes to somebody's career, however, I think you've got to measure – like the greatest of all time seems to be only grand slams. And I'm like, Whoa, Martina won 167 titles, you know? And, and, uh, you know, I think when it comes to that measuring somebody's career, I think it's grand slams and tournament titles and percentage of wins, you know? And I mean, there's a little bit more involved than just grand slams, but, um, you know, I like it that it's on on the Grand Slams and also the combined events that the the men are the men and women play. Those are all also heavy when it comes to um, you know winning winning those tournaments are pretty important to I think a player's in a player's mind also. You um you made a lot of records and a lot of them still stand to this day. There's obviously the 18 Slams, which is probably the thing you 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 get introduced with when you go on TV, it's on your strap line or whatever, but 34 slam finals for me, the most extraordinary 52 slam semifinals out of 56 played. That blows my mind. It really does. 157 titles, seven year end number ones. Which are those you most proud of? Or maybe it's something else entirely. You know, I kind of like, I like, I like the Grand Slam semifinals, and I like the percentage. I think I'm 90% in wins. Um, I think that still is the record. Um, I think it, it might be 89.9, but I think I always round it off. Um, and 125 matches on clay for over five years. That's a good one. <laughs> it's nice to know that I still have a few left. And 71 of the 258, I'm going, this is really deep dive now, Chrissy. 71 of the 258 sets that you played in that streak were six love sets. That's 28% of all the sets you played were six love. I mean, that's crazy. That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, Did you, did you, did you feel invincible during that period? Yeah. Like I said, you know, I came along with a different game. It was a baseline game. Um, I didn't have a very good volley. I didn't have a very good serve. Um, it's not all, you know, which which you needed for a faster court for a grass court. But um, on clay, I I was I grew up on it. I started when I was six years old or five years old, and and I learned how to slide easily, and I and I learned how to work. Um, grind it out and work my opponent from corner to corner. I didn't have power, didn't have a lot of power, but I had placement. I had a good drop shot and I had probably the most important thing. I had patience. So that was a new look at us at a different style of play that the women, 
um, champions like again Billy and Rosie and and you know they all plus they all grew up in California and California was all hard courts whereas Florida was all great, uh, clay courts you know Florida and Spain and you know South America that was all about clay but California was Stan Smith and Billy and Rosie and and that's how they and plus the fact that in the late 60s early 70s again three out of the four of the Grand Slams were on grass so you had to serve volley you had to learn how to serve volley so um you know, and nowadays it's, it's, you know, the players could do everything. So it's all, it's good. There's not one style of play. I mean, uh, Simona Halep can win a Wimbledon and she can win a French Open. Serena, same, same thing. It's not, you're not specialized players anymore. I'm, I'm totally going to sound like a therapist now, but do you have any regrets about your career? No, think about my career. Just don't ask about my life, but about my career. I think I would be very greedy if I had regrets about my career. I think I would be, I mean, I think it would be, I would be greedy. I think I, I'm very happy with my career and I'm very happy that I got the most out of this body of mine. Um, five foot six, 125 pounds and, um, not being the the quickest, strongest, whatever, fastest, you know, I think that I I I got a lot out of my talent, and um, I I gave it a hundred percent. So I'm not, no, I don't have any regrets. What players now do you see yourself in? Do you see those traits that you just described? Um. There's only one Chrissy. <laughs> I don't know. That's an amazing answer. The only reason I said that is because I'm looking at you and I'm, you're so cute over there, Catherine. I, you know, I can't, I, it's like, it's, I can't even, I, Simona would be game wise. I would think Simona Halep, you know, she's so, uh, she's so solid, um, but not temperament wise because she's, a, you know, more of an emotional player. Um, I was just, I was thinking of the mental part of the game. I was thinking who, you know, Nadal. Djokovic, maybe mentally. I'm not, not that I'm saying I, I'm as good as him mentally or I, I, but I, I, I see similarities in the, um, uh, that, it, 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 I mean, I don't, does that sound like really conceited? I, I don't even know. I, I, okay. It would sound conceited if I said it, Chrissy, but no, you, no, no, okay, you can okay, say okay, it. Okay, okay. Yeah. I, I think I, I'm not, I mean, Nadal has more passion than I ever had. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm giving him kudos for that. I mean, he's, he's over the, char- over the moon when it comes to off the charts, when it comes to passion and commitment and, you know, but I think with, with, with Novak, I see, I see the, you know, I want to say the smoothness, the steadiness, the consistency, the calmness, um, you know, not, not real emotional out there, um, the focus. So I feel like I maybe would have some of those things more in common with him than with, than with other men players. We've got a lot of aging greats in the game at the moment that probably didn't want to have a year, possibly less, possibly more taken out of their careers. Who, who do you think this situation might hurt the most? You know, I'm not sure that's true. I've been thinking about that. I'm not sure that's true because, you know, I mean, for somebody like Serena to come to be spending all this time now with her family and her and her her daughter, husband, you know, she secretly might be getting into better shape, and there's certainly a lot of time to work out. And she just this might sort of fuel the fire a little bit more with Serena to come back because I I do think a woman, and I don't know about a man, but I know as a woman. I felt like after I had a child, I was in better, I got myself in better shape than before I had a child. I think your body changes, but 
in, in a positive sense. And so I'm not, I'm not sure. It could work either way with Serena. She could maybe enjoy being at home so much and have new business ventures and be really want to be with her, her, her family, but it could also fuel the fire and she could miss it even more than usual. So I don't know who it's going to benefit. I really, I mean, Roger had surgery, so he's, he was going to be out most of the summer anyway. Um, it'll be interesting because for me, you know, the first thing that went was the mental part and the, desire to go out there day in and day out. Um, when they come back, they have to have that intensity. And that's the big question because I think their bodies are, will be fine. Right. I mean, they have teams to take care of them. They've had a lot of time to train and work out. And I think it's all going to be about motivation with Roger and Serena. They've had a lot of time to do Instagram lives. They have now Novak. It, Novak was on a roll. I mean, he was maybe looking to win the Grand Slam this year. He was, he was almost unbeatable, and it probably will affect him a little bit more than was, the others. He was talking about going the year unbeaten, right? That's what he was. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. How do you feel about tennis behind closed doors? Strange. It's a strange feeling. I don't. Well, first of all, I don't know how you can play it even for TV, play a tournament and not have anybody in the stands. I don't know how players can get enthusiastic or players can really get psyched up. I mean, it'd be like a practice match. <laughs> right? I, don't know. I mean, I, 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 it falls into two. Some people are just like, get tennis back however yeah. as quickly as possible. And some people think it's not worth it. It would be too too weird for it to be like that. I mean, I don't, I don't know. But I would think that they would have people in and why not just have people sitting six feet apart with masks on or something? I, but I can't see a match being played with nobody in the stands. That I can't see. Um, I don't. I, I don't know what the answer is. I. I, I feel really. Um, I, I don't know. It's just something that you never thought would happen. To try and finish on a a positive note, what would you like tennis to look like when it does come back? The same, different. Um, I what would I like to tennis? I'm, I, you know, when you asked me that question, I, the first thing I thought of was the players. I think I'd like to see happy players come back, appreciating their sport, appreciating their position in the sport of tennis, um, knowing how fortunate they are. I I like to see everyone have different perspectives, be, you know, be better people, less judgmental, not, not, don't sweat the small stuff. Just everybody have a renewed confidence in, in life and in their ability to, um, you know, care for other people. I, I want people to change from the inside. And, and I think that will reflect the sport or reflect everything that anybody does. So I'm I'm thinking more about I guess the person because uh, I think that will you know that's got to develop first before anything else develops and um, I I just don't I just I mean is this they say the pandemic will always be here I, I, will the virus will always be around I, I don't know I, I just don't know how how what it's going to look like when when players come back I have no idea. Yeah, so much uncertainty. Where is that a good note? Is that our good Well, note? I tried to end on a positive. <laughs> I mean, it's quite hard to end on a positive in a global pandemic. That's uh that's well, what how, I found, but How about coming How about the 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 puzzle of the men and the women uniting and forming an alliance and a strong partnership and playing tournaments together and it all gelling really well and um everybody's successful that's the dream right yeah gotta live the dream absolutely chrissy it's been such a pleasure to to do this therapy session with you (laughs) thank you thank you text me your phone number and i'll get back to you next week okay yeah (laughs) (laughs) um no i appreciate honestly thanks so much for your honesty and just 
I mean, there's a million other things we could talk about, but it's, yeah, it's, it's been such a pleasure. Well, I've enjoyed working with you in, in Paris. I hope we do that again. Goodness me. Me too. I hope that happens again soon. Fingers crossed, huh? Yeah. Right. I will let you get back to your life. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Stay well. Bye. Bye. So that was Chris Evert. Um, I hope you can hear why it was such a great pleasure to get to speak to her, to get to interview her. She was so candid, so honest, so relaxed um, and uh, yeah, so insightful. Um, And uh, I think we all feel enriched for for getting to know her and getting to know her career uh, a bit better, not just her, but all of the stories that we've been following over the course of the last uh, few weeks and months in the absence of live tennis. So that isn't where our Chris Everett week ends. We'll be back uh, with you on Sunday with the Chris Everett story, our reflections and reactions to that Chris Everett interview and and a look back through her illustrious career, 18 Grand Slam titles, the best ever win percentage in tennis and of course that extraordinary rival with Martina Vratilova. As I said um, in the intro to this podcast, any um, news that happens in the tennis world over the coming days and of course we are expecting an announcement on the US Open, whether that will go ahead this year, we're expecting that announcement imminently. Um, we will be coming to you with uh, a news and reactions podcast as well. But you are guaranteed another podcast in just a few days' time, our reflections on the Chris Everett story. For now, though, stay safe, stay well. We'll speak to you soon. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.